Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We will wrap up our reflections into not only chapter 15, but this whole section that has been dealing with the resurrection. But before we do so, I did just want to continue to thank all of you who are, who are tuning in by way of podcasts in the countries of Mexico, Canada, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, India, China, Portugal, France, Spain, Italy. Um, I continue to see all of you on the grid, and it continues to bring me great joy to see that you are taking time out of your very busy schedules to join me here on Seeds of Truth, where we reflect into the richness of the Christian and Catholic faith, and in doing so, hopefully discover the beauty of divine revelation. You know, I was in a conversation with someone yesterday, and they were telling me all about what they think about sacred scripture. And that is fine to the degree that our thinking is tied to what has been divinely revealed, objectively revealed, right? We have to always remember something about truth. Truth in of itself is something objective. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? Not I am a way or a truth or a life. No, the way, the truth, and the life. We have to be okay with saying Jesus Christ is our Savior and no one else. So truth itself, my friends, is never to be reduced to just what we think about the Christian and Catholic faith, as much as it is about something to be discovered. So it's not arbitrary, whatever you make it out to be, but something to be discovered. And that is what is so beautiful about the Christian and Catholic faith, because there's always more to discover You've heard me say on more than one occasion that God's love is inexhaustible, right? God is mystery, and the very word mystery means inexhaustible. So God's love is inexhaustible. That means we can never exhaust the depths and the love of God. So there's always something new to discover. And what we come to discover, the deeper we go, is that God calls us to encounter Him in the Trinity, in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. The beauty of our faith lies not in what we think about it, no, but what can be discovered, right? Because this is what is exciting. This is hopefully what gets us up in the morning, right? And and this is an important principle of truth. So this conversation that I was in just the other day um, turned into really a conversation about how we are called to discover truth. And uh, I am grateful that the conversation did lead to a deeper understanding of the nature of truth itself, right? Truth is not subject to time, okay? <laughs> if something is objectively true one day, it doesn't cease to be true the next day, right? And, and we have to appreciate these things for what they are. All right, all of that being said, let us get back into 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and pick up where we left off, and I think it was verses 55, 56, when we were about to reflect into the Old Testament, but For the sake of context, I will go ahead and read, oh, let's see here, verses 51 to 58. So if you have your Bibles out and you can turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 58. Behold, 
I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable nature must put on the imperishable, and this mortal nature must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. All right, so, like I said, we left off, I think, with verses 54, 55, and following in our, in our last time together, and there we were on the brink of reflecting into the Old Testament. And why? Because here Paul quotes the Old Testament. I still recall a saying of a former professor of mine that when you see a footnote, <laughs> when you're reading the New Testament and you see an Old Testament footnote, that is like a rumble strip. You know, when you're coming up to a toll and you hit those bumps, those are called rumble strips, right? They are telling you to slow down. <laughs> when you go to the footnotes and you see an Old Testament passage, that, my friends, is a rumble strip. We are intended to stop what we are reading and to go back into the Old Testament. So as I say that, that is what I want to do, because here in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have Paul appealing to Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, and Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, to announce the final demise of death. But again, for the sake of context, uh, let's go there now. Isaiah chapter 25, and I'll go ahead and read verses 8 to 9. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So this is the passage, at least one of the passages, that uh, St. Paul is echoing, and he paraphrases it a little bit there, huh? How about Hosea chapter 13, verse 14? Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your destruction? Compassion is hid from my eyes. Now, in these two passages, what you have here is a, a very rich Old Testament background, huh? Now, we didn't get all of it in those two verses we read from Isaiah, but collectively, Isaiah is describing a banquet of rich foods where all the nations will come to celebrate the end of suffering as the Lord swallows up death forever. Hosea, likewise, forecasts that death will one day be robbed of its power and taunted like a defeated enemy. So in Paul's mind, my friends, this day will dawn with the general resurrection. So by him talking about it in his catechesis on the resurrection, he is saying what? The day has dawned. Huh? The day has dawned. What about this language of the sting? I think this is very important more globally when you start talking about salvation itself. You just heard me read from Isaiah 
that word, salvation, sting, my friends, enables death to exercise its dominion over the entire world. But its venom, if you will, has been absorbed by Christ. And so we could say drained of its potency so that the victory over death now belongs to God and uh, God's people. Uh, George Montague, the commentator that we have been working with, um, reflects into this cryptic sentence, uh, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Really interesting here. When you look at this verse, at least for me, it caught me off guard because it, the, the, the verse does not seem to be in continuity with the context. But this is what George Montague has to say, and I like this a lot. Paul continues to personify death here as a serpent or a scorpion that stings its victim before devouring it. Sin puts its victim on the path to death. And the law makes sin more deadly because when one sins, one not only goes against one's conscience, but one also disobeys a positive command. That is why it was not sufficient for Christ to just rise from the dead. He must also deal the death blow to sin, the cause of death. So what St. Paul then is saying here is ultimately, if you are betraying your conscience, you are also betraying what? A positive command. I mean, who says no to something positive in the real world? We all want that which is positive. But for one reason or another, as it relates to our faith, we deny all the positives that our faith wants to shower us with. And ultimately, in the end, what is so tragic about this is we bear false witness to our neighbor. We get so used to our sin that we begin to bear false witness to our neighbor. This is why adhering to the Ten Commandments is so important. You know, this verse and the power of sin is law should remind us that we need to get out of the rut of our sin and back onto the path of all that is life-giving, um, lest we not only betray our conscience, but also bear false witness to our neighbor. Very important stuff here. All right, what else here? Well, verses 56 and, and, and 57, especially verse 57, verse 57 comes like a, a drum roll, huh? <laughs> As the climax of a masterpiece. It is like a banner proclaiming victory in a ticker tape parade, or maybe in the experience of the Corinthians as we're going to going through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the parade of champion athletes at the Isthmian Games, which of course were very popular to the people of Corinth. Now, uh, this word, therefore, when I was going through these verses and just reflecting with these verses, for one reason or another, that word really stood out. Why? Because once you say, therefore, you have already established something, right? <laughs> he is saying, that is, Paul here is saying, therefore, because based upon everything he has just said, he can now say with a certain confidence and certitude what he says. And listen again to verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So he gives us three things to think about on the heels of his whole catechesis, his whole instruction on the resurrection, especially, especially on the heels of, his, of these verses that talk about our victory in Jesus Christ. We need to be steadfast, immovable, and abounding in the work of the Lord. So we need to be steadfast. Okay, we need to persevere in running the race. What is that passage? 
That comes to us from James chapter 1, verse 4. Be patient in all things. Be steadfast in all things. Because when you are, the Lord God will reward you. Huh? The Lord God will reward you. How about immovable? Recently here in the city of Chico, we've had some pretty high winds. And um, at our home, we have six birch trees. Uh, they have thin trunks and, and they sway back and forth. And what's really interesting is we've had two birch trees that were dead. And with these heavy winds, we've lost those birch trees. The other four, because their roots are strong, um, they are what? Immovable. So the winds were heavy. The winds were strong. The winds were blowing. To the ones that were alive, to the ones that were deeply rooted, they didn't budge. To the birch trees that were dead, well, they blew over because the root system had died out. Brothers and sisters, our Lord calls us to be radical, radical in our faith. And what does that mean? Well, the very word radical means root, right? So the more we are rooted in Jesus Christ, the more radical we will be, okay? There's a reason why we use the word radical, because we are radical the deeper we are rooted in Jesus Christ. So if we want to be immovable, okay, then we need to be rooted in Jesus Christ. Incidentally, what does the word peace mean? We think about the word peace, and we usually tie it to the absence of warfare. Well, better translated is spiritual welfare, right? So peace is just not the absence of warfare, but spiritual welfare. It is being in covenant harmony with God. And I talk about peace now as it relates to being immovable, because peace is about being in covenant relationship with God. I mean, think about that great narrative where we have Jesus in the boat and those tempest winds about to blow the boat over and, and the, the 12 disciples are in fear. What does Jesus say? Do not be afraid. And he commands the storm to what? Be still. But what does he first say? Peace. Be still. You see, when we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we can look into the eye of the storm and say what? Peace. Be still. Just like Jesus himself said to the tempest winds, peace, be still. So understand that being immovable just isn't about the calm in as much as it is about being in a very real, tangible relationship with Jesus Christ and not allowing the stormy circumstances of life to overwhelm you, to, to overrun you. Because if there's anything we know here on earth is that things will go wrong right? <laughs> things will go wrong. But will those things that go wrong in your life shake you to the point where you lose your faith? Or will you look into the eye of that thing going wrong and allow your faith to determine how to handle it? We can put it another way. Do you allow another person's weakness to dictate how you love, right? We, we all have a fallen nature, but, but in Christ Jesus, as St. Paul talks about, we can rise up, huh? We can rise up and be the best version of who God is calling us to be, which as St. Paul challenges us with here, to be immovable, to be men and women of peace, that we might have the strength to look into the eye of the storm and say, peace, be still, huh? And lastly, 
this third element, always abounding in the work of the Lord. My dear friends, let us never be caught idle. I know that is a dramatic way of saying it. <laughs> you know, well, come on, Joe. Do we always have to be about the work of the Lord? Well, what does St. Paul say here? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Being assured that God will reward our faithfulness in the resurrection and put the struggles of daily life in perspective. Practically speaking, Paul, in this closing exhortation, is summoning us to glorify God in all that we do. In all that we do, we can go out to dinner with some friends. Brothers and sisters, let that dinner conversation be holy conversation. Maybe we are working in the backyard with our children, pulling weeds. Brothers and sisters, let that time with your child be uplifted in God. Whatever it is that you are doing, let that time be something that can be offered to God. I know this has been one of the, the great themes to just not our reflections here on Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth, but also here on Seeds of Truth. It's just that important of a truth the need to see how we are called to glorify God in all that we do. Mindful, right, that it is Jesus Christ in us who is being glorified. All right, all that being said, uh, let us jump into chapter 16. I did want to speak to a few pieces here in chapter 16. Um, this is the last chapter in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And what's interesting here is this does... Uh, start off with another response. Now concerning, chapter 16, verse 1, now concerning the contribution for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. So once again, that phrase, now concerning, Paul is responding to a very specific inquiry from a previous Corinthian letter. And maybe I should speak to something else here. I was in a conversation with someone a few days ago about just letters in general and antiquity, and this particular person was saying it was just, it's really sad we don't write letters anymore. I want to speak to that a little bit, because when you really reflect with it, Paul is writing a letter. In him writing a letter, he was performing a noble good, right? He was responding to the questions that the people had, and he was doing so in the form of a letter. So when someone comes to me today and says, well, I'd I'd rather not write a letter. I, I, I would like to meet with him in person. If you can meet with him in person, great. In this particular case, she wasn't. But she also wasn't wanting to write a letter because she just didn't feel like it was going to satisfy the question. Well, I get what you're saying there. Here on Seeds of Truth, I have talked at length about the importance of being physically present to another person. But if you can't be physically present, then why not write a letter? And, and writing a letter is very, very different than a text. Because when we text one another, it doesn't have that sense of reflection, if you will. As opposed to when I receive a letter, a longer letter, it communicates a sense of reflection. It communicates a sense of care, huh? And so, while we know, as it relates to Paul's letter to the church of Corinth, he was clearly discerning what he wanted to say, and he organized it systematically. And we can learn something from that in our own letter writing and being encouraged that actually writing letters is an okay thing to do. And I would also say it really trumps texting or in some cases even emailing. Emailing can be a good thing. You can still come across as reflective. But don't think for a second writing a letter is a bad thing. 
be mindful of the very simple fact that all of Paul's epistles are, well, that, epistles. They are letters, but letters of reflection, letters of reflection. So, I know we diverted from the subject matter here a little bit, but a point that needs to be made, because when Paul is saying, now concerning, he's responding to a question, and he's doing so in the form of a letter. Okay, continuing on here. Now concerning the contribution for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper so that contributions need not be made when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany you. How about this verse on the first day of every week? What day is that? Well, it's Sunday, the Lord's Day. Here, Paul is probably directing his readers to collect their donation when they gather for prayer and, and Eucharistic worship, right? Um, he hopes they will give generously to the charitable campaign. It's, it's interesting. I often get the question asked, Joe, why do we need to tithe? Why do we need to give to the church? It just seems like this church, that church is constantly penny-pinching. You know, <laughs> why the constant demand? Well, there's always been the need for charitable campaigning, huh? For who? Those who are most in need. When we draw back and we look at everything that is around us, praise God for each and every, just not Catholic church, but every Christian church that is willing to give, willing to donate for the common good. Brothers and sisters, those who have less need our charitable giving. Jesus Christ makes that clear, makes that clear. So let us not balk at this idea of needing to give to the church. Hopefully, hopefully, the church is using your money wisely. Most churches do, I'm sure. And in so doing, really are honoring what is biblical, right? What is biblical? I mean, we can go all the way back to Abraham to see the importance of tithing, right? Giving a tenth, uh, very important. It's really interesting for everything that we do as a church, there's at least in seed form something in sacred scripture. Okay, how about uh, verses 5 to 9? I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may speed me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries, many adversaries. How about that verse? <laughs> and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may speed me on my journey wherever I go. So what is on Paul's mind there? <laughs> he is an ambassador for Christ. St. Paul is thinking about one thing, and that thing is a person, and that person, of course, is the person of Jesus Christ. Please give me what I need, food and shelter, so that I may be on my way wherever I need to go. I mean, do we have that disposition? Do we have that desire to serve the Lord? Do we? Do we think that way? Do we trust in God that way? I'm going to come to your city and please help me. I know you are because God always provides so that I may just continue to be a missionary for Christ. Do we abandon ourselves to Jesus Christ like that? Just surrender everything to Him. Is this not the greatest challenge before us? Mindful that 
in every challenge, we have an opportunity. So we could better say, is that not the greatest opportunity before us? An opportunity to show not only our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, but first and foremost, our love for God. And that when we love in God, we will learn the language of love and be able to better love the people of God, the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, I am looking up the clock and we are out of time. You know, my friends, our reflections into Paul's catechesis and instruction on the resurrection has really had us looking at, we could say, the mountain peak and the valley. We are made to see that beyond the valley of human life lies a Mount Everest, a Mount Everest that is the ultimate destiny for the human person. Brothers and sisters, the human heart has a capacity that the present world simply cannot fulfill. At best, it can be a microcosm of what God has in store for us, but it can never fully satisfy. Huh? What a cruel joke it would be to be endowed with an appetite that could never be fulfilled. What does St. Augustine say? Thou hast made us for thyself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. We have an ache in our heart, and God put it there. God put it there that we might long for him, that we might ache for him, that we might desire him. And that in the end, when we find him, we will be satisfied. But it is a satisfaction that constantly has us going back, right? Why? Because, well, what did I say earlier? Yes, God is mystery, but as such, he is inexhaustible love. And so it is a satisfaction that is inexhaustible. We will only finally be totally satisfied when we are in the heavenly Jerusalem, huh? All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.